Hello and welcome to the Crystal Podcast on iCode Media. Today, what I wanted to do is I wanted to cover some of the frequently asked questions that we get related to modifiers. And I think this is really helpful and important. One, because we get a lot of confusion surrounding modifiers and 99 code building. And we're trying to clarify those as much as possible within our subscribers uh, at iCode Education. The other is that there's this common understanding that if I can just get paid for this thing that I'm doing, then it's done correctly. And so we want to kind of avoid you know, doing those types of things. And it's not just about getting paid for something. It's also about making things defensible on an audit. So that's what we're going to discuss today. Please enjoy our conversation or our discussion. And as always, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, write a review, share it with your friends, and support those who support us. As you know, patients with vitreous floaters are often frustrated by their symptoms. The challenge as clinicians is to offer solutions for our patients for vitreous floaters that are effective. But more often than not, the options of YAG vitreolysis and vitrectomy are not practical because the benefits don't outweigh the risks. That's where vitreous health from MacuHealth comes into play. Previously on the podcast, I've discussed the flies study with Dr. John Nolan, and the bottom line is that I can be confident prescribing this for my patients with floaters because I can tell them a large randomized placebo-controlled trial found that after six months of supplementation with vitreous health, floaters were reduced in size by approximately 30%, and 70% of patients had an improvement in their symptoms. Vitreous health has been great for my patients, and we really feel like we have a viable option to treat patients with vitreous floaters now that we didn't have before. If you're not utilizing vitreous health for your patients, reach out to your Macchia Health representative now. Emerging presbyopes and emetropic presbyopes can be tricky. These patients want and need additional help at near, but they can be resistant to solutions that create even mild distance blur. The MyDay multifocal lens has been great for our presbyopic patients. It allows those patients to transition into a multifocal more easily and more comfortably. And we've had this lens for long enough now that we have been able to see the simple and how simple the adaptation can be when adjusting from lower ad designs to higher ad designs. When prescribing MyDay contact lenses, you can feel confident about your environmental impact because for every MyDay contact lens sold in the United States, CooperVision's partner, Plastic Blank, collects and converts an equal amount of ocean-bound plastic through their global network. MyDay multifocal contact lenses will provide your patients with a great quality of vision and comfortable lens wearing experience, all while making a difference in our environment. So if you haven't started utilizing MyDay Multifocal in your practice, I'd encourage you to reach out to your CooperVision representative to get started. All right, so I just got a recent member question related to the XU modifier. And the question was, what's the difference between using the XU modifier and the 59 modifier? So I think it's a really helpful question. We're going to get at the underlying question that I think is there. And, and ultimately, I'll, I'll talk about it right now. I think the underlying question, it turns out that as I answered this, this subscriber about that, uh, it, it was the underlying question, but that's not what they were trying to, to ask specifically. I'll also tell you that, you know, there's a couple things within billing and coding, and we've really focused on this and enhanced our services related to billing and coding and helping doctors who are subscribers within iCode Education and their billing and coding. And what we find is that you can kind of break down a process to really doing billing and coding at a high level. It's the first step is 
you got to know how to use your nine nine codes. But that's where a lot of people will stop is they think if I just know if it's a level three or level four, then all my billing and coding woes will go away. And, and the reality is, is they won't. Uh, you know, you have to have that piece well. And we teach that at iCode Education. We teach how to do nine nine codes really well. But we also have, have identified that if you can't answer the question about whether or not a patient is routine or medical uh, based on a cheap complaint, you'll also hit problems in, in your patient flow. So we, we kind of have this second step. So step one is getting your 9-9 codes right. And so just in general, I think a very good KPI that you can use, and we've talked about this time and time again, is your level three to level four ratio. So the level three to level four ratio tells us are you applying acute care in most cases for, for optometric practices? Are you applying the value that you're telling a payer that you're providing to a patient for acute care? Are you applying that correctly? And really that ratio, if you look at the way that most optomet optometrists practice, that ratio should be right around one. You'll find that if you divide the number of level fours, level threes by the level fours that you use, you should see that it's about split 50-50. So that ratio should be about a one-to-one -one split. We find that patient, that doctors who are a little higher than one, usually one to one to 1.5, those doctors will kind of have a an error on, or, or maybe not even an error. If they understand how to use the 9-9 codes and apply them correctly, then they typically prescribe less medications uh, and that might be a legitimate reason why they're, they're a little higher than one. So one to 1.5 is probably they're using them correctly, but they may not prescribe as many medications or perform as many procedures in the practice as somebody who maybe is right around a level foot one, but is lower. So they might have like a 0.8 or a 0.75. Those providers that, that are in that range, typically, if they understand how to use the 9-9 codes, are typically going to be performing more procedures and prescribing more medications than those who are a little at one or a little higher than one. That's what we typically find when we analyze people who are using their 9-9 codes correctly. That's step one. So the ratio of your level threes to level fours. Step two, uh, where we really have to work with offices and deep dive into step two, is are you, are you providing chronic care for patients? Uh, in a comprehensive way. So the way we analyze this first, and you could analyze this in your practices, are you actually like, what is the number of nine, nine codes to refractions over a period of time? What's that ratio? What's that percentage? And what you should find if you look at prevalence data for the vast majority of common conditions that we see in practice, that it's a very achievable um, consideration based on clinical practice guidelines and prevalence data. And I'm going to do some other updates that go way into this. I'm just giving you kind of an overview of what we do from an iCode standpoint is that step two is to say, if you are, if, if you're not performing, uh, for every refraction that you provide, you're not performing, uh, 25% nine, nine codes. What that means is that if you analyze, let's say over the course of a year, uh, and you saw a thousand refractions, then at least you should see a patient back 250 times within that based on chronic disease prevalence in a comprehensive care practice. You should see those patients back for nine, nine codes, sometimes outside within that year, sometime outside 
of the refractive visit, of the comprehensive exam and refraction. Now, again, I can break this down one more time, but there's some caveats here. The first thing is that is the assumption that most providers, and this is the case when we work with, with doctors, most providers will do a comprehensive exam and a refraction together, and that will be that will serve as one visit. And then if that patient has glaucoma, macular degeneration, anterior basement membrane dystrophy, uh, ocular surface disease, lattice degeneration, uh, vitromacular interface diseases like epiretinal membranes, those five conditions, I think I gave you five, five or six conditions, you would expect at least almost a one-to-one -one ratio that if you see a patient for a comprehensive exam who is over the age of 40, will have one of those other conditions that I listed. And so if your assumption is that you're only doing seeing those patients back additionally, one extra time a year to manage one of those other conditions, and, and that's only occurring 25% of the time, which is kind of a low bar. When we work with a lot of practices, what, what we get them to is we get them into the 60% range or 70% range where they're actually managing these ocular diseases. They've uh, correctly identified what is routine, what is medical, and then what am I going to do on these other follow-up visits to really address that underlying condition deeper, that chronic condition deeper. Those practices are really satisfied in this in, in understanding the nuances of routine and medical, and they've built a pillar that is supporting their practice related to that ocular disease. So what you should see is, if you look at all your 9-9 codes compared to your, nine, uh, your refractions, you should see that 0.25, so divide your 9-9 codes total by your number of refractions, and that should be 0.25%, uh, the ratio should be 0.25, or should be 25%. Uh, or better. And so what that tells us is that if you have integrated, you know, at least a, a um, an appropriate evaluation of those patients and follow-up visits within that course of a year, then you've established some sort of pillar and we can refine that over time. And that's the, the real challenging step for most people because can it be automated? It can. You can take a course to learn about it, but it's really challenging for them to integrate it in the practice. And a lot of the things we do with our online resources and with our live back and forth, we call them office hours, uh, those can help people work through some of the challenges that, th that they may encounter. So this question that I'm going to address today is coming directly from that. It's basically, hey, Chris, we are having a challenge with our patients who have um, let's say macular degeneration and glaucoma, and we're trying to see them back at maybe every six months, but it's a real hard thing to do because uh, I want to get a, um, a photograph of their macular degeneration, maybe a fundus autofluorescence because I, I want to detect geographic atrophy, but I also want to get a optic nerve OCT. So when do I do that and how do I do it? And so the question comes up is like, I'm researching this, I'm looking for other ways to do it. I don't like your answer, Chris. There's gotta be other ways. So I'm gonna explain my answer and why my answer is what it is. But first, let's just take a little deeper dive into what XU modifiers are and 59 modifiers. So I wanna read here, a 59 modifier is a distinct procedural service. Under certain circumstances, it may be necessary to indicate that a procedure or service was distinct or independent from another non 
ENM, Evaluation and Management Service, performed on the same day. Modifier 59 is used to identify procedures, services other than Evaluation and Management Services that are not normally reported together, but are appropriate under circumstances, certain circumstances, and we'll talk about those. Documentation must support a different session, different procedure or surgery, different site or organ system, separate incision, excision, separate lesion, or separate injury not ordinarily encountered or performed on the same day by the same individual. So many people want to utilize this 59 modifier for tests. And the common thing we see is I want to do an OCT and fundus photography on the same day. But it will typically be denied because the correct coding initiative, the CCI edits for Medicare states that uh, that 59 modifiers uh, are not there to circumvent the CCI edits, unless it is in very specific situations. Okay, the other thing that's important to know is that uh, modifiers, there's, there's now a subcategory of the 59 modifiers. You can think of 59 modifiers as being an overarching modifier that could allow you to do this. But then they have actually created these other four modifiers that are more specific situations. And so when they're more specific, you would use them over the 59 modifier. And I'll tell you just in general, my um, advice is that these, and, and, and I'll tell you why, but my advice and my recommendation is that we're not gonna use these for those situations either, basically to, un, to uh, circumvent that CCI edit from an OCT and fundus photography being billed on the same day. These modifiers I'm going to tell you about in, right now are not there to circumvent that either. So they're not an answer to the, the conundrum, the problem of a 59 modifier. So these modifiers are an XE modifier, an XS modifier, an XP modifier, and an XU modifier. So uh, uh, they, they give greater reporting specificity. But um, but they're not applicable in this. So I want to I want to do dive in just in this case to the XU modifier, um, and so it's basically for an unusual non-overlapping service, the use of a service that is distinct because it does not overlap the usual components of a main service. I think it might even be helpful for for me to read uh, and show you what the other modifiers are as well. So let's go into um, those other three modifiers here. The most common questions I get include, what ophthalmological codes or evaluation and management codes should I use? What ICD-10 codes do I need to bill with this CPT code? What CPT codes can be billed together and what can't? And my favorite, how do I manage a patient who has diabetes who comes in for a quote-unquote routine eye exam? These questions really highlight the confusion and uncertainty that serves as a daunting hurdle for providers, makes it more challenging for them to care for their patients and provide those patients with the best opportunity for a lifetime of ocular health and clear vision. That's why we built iCode Education for this specific purpose. Our mission is to provide optometrists with resources to help you understand disease states, revenue cycles, and billing and coding so that you can put that on autopilot and truly care for your patients. Check out iCodeEducation.com. That's E-Y-E-C-O-D-E Education.com. We've developed a premier billing and coding bundle that includes all of our billing and coding resources in one place. We also have a 10% discount code just for listeners of this podcast. Enter the coupon code E-Y-E-C-O-D-E-M-E-D-I-A-22 at checkout. 
We'd love to work with you. Check out iCodeEducation.com. Getting young presbyopes into progressive lenses can be tough, but it doesn't have to be. Verilux Liberty 3.0 lenses are an introductory solution for new and young presbyopes, and they are available in select ad powers. This lens provides all-in-one balanced vision for an accessible and great first-time progressive lens wearing experience. Learn more about Verilux Liberty 3.0 lenses and get free resources to help start the progressive lens conversation with young presbyopes at slorepro.com slash Verilux. So we look at what the definition of X E, so we'll do um, X-ray echo modifier, is a separate encounter, a service that is distinct because it occurred during a separate encounter. That's not going to apply here. Uh, X-ray Sierra is a separate structure, which may apply, but again, it doesn't apply in this case because of the same reason that the X-ray uniform, XU modifier, uh, doesn't work either. So uh, X-ray Sierra, separate structure, is a service that is distinct because it was performed on a separate organ or structure. And then obviously uh, X-ray PAPA or XP is a separate practitioner, a service that is distinct because it was performed by a different practitioner. So obviously that's not uh, that's not going to apply here either. So the, the bottom line is each one of those I don't think apply. The one that would be closest was probably going to be your uh, X-ray Sierra or your X-ray Uniform. But let's talk about why those don't work in this case. So you want to think about uh, both of them as a more descriptive modifier than a 59 modifier, as a subcategory of modifier 59. And the reason that I am not advising that we utilize this is because of exactly what Medicare says. So CMS says that in order to use a 59 modifier, the documentation must support a different session, different procedure or surgery, different site or organ system. And that may apply. I'll, I'll say that in a second, because then you can look at that and say, well, is this a different site or a different organ system? Maybe, maybe it is. And so you can reason through there that to say that this, this might apply, but, okay, but they also say that the definition of a different anatomic site includes different organs or different lesions in the same organ. Okay, so there, there we go. We could say, okay, we're talking about maybe diabetic retinopathy and glaucoma, for example. Then it says, however, it does not include treatment of a contiguous structure of the same organ. Okay, well, is the optic, the next question that I get from people is, well, Chris, is the optic nerve a contiguous structure of the retina? And I think, okay, that's that's reasonable. It's reasonable to think that. Um, but then they go on, CMS goes on to further say that treatment of the posterior segment structures in the eye constitute a single anatomic site. So that is the answer. It, they basically, you cannot um, decouple your optic nerve from your macula, from your, the rest of your retina, they're specific in what they say here. So ultimately, the 59 modifier is not to be used to uncouple your OCT and your fundus photo. Can it be done? Can you get paid? Yes, you can. But the likelihood that it's going to be defensible on an audit with language like this is... Uh, exceedingly rare, and you can't just get fancy and use X-ray Echo, X-ray Sierra, X-ray Papa, or X-ray Uniform to do that because they're more specific because they still do not apply. So how do we do this the right way? There's three ways to do this. The first way, I do not recommend doing it this way, but the first way I see practices do this is that they 
perform both on the same day, bill for one and don't bill for the other. Don't do this, okay? If I haven't said that enough times, don't do this. You're, there's a couple reasons not to do it this way. First, it could be looked at as providing services that are bundled in some circumstances, but unbundled in others. And they could view, a payer could view this as different billing habits for different payers. Secondly, and this is just as important as you've invested in the technology and the doctors invested in the knowledge, education and training acquired to utilize that technology in the right ways. And so you should be rewarded for that knowledge, education and training and the uh, risk associated with uh, taking those scans, interpreting those scans correctly and changing your follow up and monitoring for patients. Um, and then, you know, that there's a lot of value for that. Uh, and then, you know, the, the way that you can do it, the two ways that are legitimate is you perform both on the same day and you have a patient sign an ABN that will accept responsibility for payment of one of those tests. Remember that an ABN basically says, hey, Mrs. Smith, this test will be covered on this day uh, and this test will be covered on that day. But if we do them together on the same day, they will likely not be covered. You will be responsible for the payment of one of those tests and she accepts that payment or, or uh, that uh, fee, or she does not, in which case you could perform on separate days. So usually my advice uh, when we're working on step two, so if I think about step two, that's how do we get practices to really uh, look at their comprehensive exams as a wide breadth of, of collecting information and data from a patient? And then identifying what's going on and then following our clinical practice guidelines to follow that that patient who has a chronic disease on a more regular basis, maybe every three months, maybe every six months, maybe every four months, uh, and stratify the, the follow-up in a way that makes sense and allows us to adhere to our clinical practice guidelines and provide the exact care for a specific patient every single time. Well, we work through this problem with them and we say, okay, well, what, what are we going to do in this case? Well, maybe, maybe what we do is on, if we're seeing them every six months, we do one of those tests standard. We do one of those tests on one visit and we plan for another one of those tests on another visit. And if we see that we need to obtain another test that coincides with one we're not supposed to do together, then in the uh, situation or the circumstance where that occurs, we can do one of two things. Mrs. Smith, uh, we can do another test that I need to do today, but if I do it today, then we explain that. Or we can just say, look, this test that we did today shows me this finding. Now we can have you back. I'm gonna have you back and we're gonna repeat this other test. We're gonna look at this other test in a week to confirm or verify that finding. That's it. It's very simple, very straightforward, but we have to work with that practice to identify how they want to, what is their preferred way to handle this so they can build in structures and processes so that they can do this right every time and they don't get stuck trying to figure out this wiggle around or this way to circumvent something because it might be easier for the patient or easier for the practice. We help you and you need to make sure that you've developed systems in your practice to deliver the care that, uh, that our guidelines tell us we should be performing, the care that the patient needs in a way that uh, is commensurate with providing value for that care that can hold up your practice and build your practice. So I hope this one was helpful. I hope this episode was helpful. As always, uh, 
please reach out to us with questions you have. We love those questions. These are great. And then also, um, if you need anything or you like any other ideas on the podcast, send us your ideas. Thanks for listening. We'll see you guys on the next one.